Right now, we're obviously seeing in the marketplace movement when it comes to the cost of everything. Things are going up, potatoes are going up, lettuce is going up, properties are costing more to run and own. Uh, everything is inflating in value when it comes to its price. So the cost of everything is fundamentally on the rise. So how do we play this game when things are moving seemingly in a direction we uh, all don't necessarily want? Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show is a cog cracker. We're going to dig into the idea of building an economic moat around our property investments. Yes, we're going to have a defensive strategy, a big part of my journey, simply sharing information, helping people understand real estate. And today, I'm going to coach some tips when it comes to being a defensive property investor. Does that sound riveting? I hope so. Hey, if it's your first time tuning into the program, make sure you play the program in double speed. As I always say, better to get your life back than listen to me, Yabaron. And of course, all my podcasts I've done are lessons on real estate. So if defense ain't rocking your boat, you can go and look for my offensive plans when it comes to buying real estate. But today, I think we should have the defensive conversation around real estate. How can we defend our position in an ever-changing real estate marketplace? What are some great tips, ideas, and plans we can walk away with when it comes to navigating this minefield of real estate. Now, of course, real estate is probably the best offensive asset class going around. I personally think it's the best there is because uh, it's created more millionaires in Australia really than any other asset class. We know it works if we uh, can hold real estate for a long period of time. We know it's going to perform, of course, during the ownership of real estate, we have all sorts of minefields to deal with. When you become a property investor, you buy problems. There's lots of problems out in the economy. There's lots of problems that we face as a property investor. We've just got to deal with it and get to the other side. And of course, the biggest challenge, as you guys know, I always say it when it comes to property investment is the problem of time. So, Let's talk about building this economic moat because as we know, I think we can all comprehend buying investments is important. You're going to have to do it. If you want to live in Australia, your wage is not going to get you to financial freedom. You're going to end up on the pension. There are so many people today barely paying themselves the minimum wage after they're expensive that they, they are literally you know on you know scrapping from week to week there's so many people working ridiculous hours like to uh, support their families and not having any money in the bank at the end of the week and fundamentally being constantly stressed so to overcome that we invest whether it's the share market whether it's the property market you have to invest and make more money part-time than you do in your job when you add your job 
and your part-time hustle, which could be, for example, being a property investor, you're going to end up in a place where you create more value in your world. Today, though, the conversation for a lot of people is how do I deal with the cost to create the value? How do I take my earnings and end up with assets? How do I deal with the cost of running real estate to end up with this thing called value from real estate? And it's a great, uh, great question. And so today I want to help you from a defensive point of view, make sure you end up with value increases over time, but also dealing with today's issue, which of course is a cost issue. Right now, we're obviously seeing in the marketplace movement when it comes to the cost of everything. Things are going up, potatoes are going up, lettuce is going up, properties are costing more to run and own. Uh, Everything is inflating in value when it comes to its price. So the cost of everything is fundamentally on the rise. So how do we play this game when things are moving seemingly in a direction we uh, all don't necessarily want. Well, I think we've first got to map out there are some levers we can pull. And today I want to talk to you about those levers. What are some great levers to actually pull when it comes to making sure we're not paying an exorbitant amount for money and we're actually making sure our properties are getting the maximum amount of rent? So I think the first real tip, if uh, you want some tips, is to play the equity game. Now, this is, again, some homework for everyone. What you need to go and do is if you own real estate and you believe it's worth more than uh, what you have paid for it, it's time to lock in your equity. Now, equity, as we know, is air. It's basically floating. The only way to capitalize on your equity is to lock it in. And uh, we call this period an equity lock period. This is uh, a pretty normal part of any growth cycle. And as we know, there are always growth patterns and then stagnation patterns and growth patterns when it comes to real estate cycles. So we want to use the equity lock. And the reason we want to use the equity lock is as equity uh, reaches its maximum amount of opportunity, we lock it in. Because let's say we've got a property, um, you know, it's gone up $100,000. In the next couple of years, let's say that equity goes from $100,000 to $80,000. We would be fundamentally reducing our available equity position. However, we can do it another way. And uh, quite often what a lot of lenders will do is allow you to uh, fundamentally go and extract your value out of your real estate and get some value in basically a redraw facility. So right now, if you've owned real estate over the last couple of years, you probably have some equity in that real estate. If you've recently bought real estate, this tip's probably not going to apply to you. If you've bought real estate in the past and you're worried about 
uh, you know, the cost rising from the real estate, it's time to actually park some cash in what we call an offset. Now, what you need to do is obviously work out the value of your real estate. And quite often this can be done today uh, through desktop appraisals or desktop valuations, or even speaking to a real estate agent. However, you're going to have to, if you're going to use equity, uh, you're going to have to get your lender to send probably a valuer out to assess your property's value. Now, usually what I see from where the market's at and where bank valuations are at, there's a discrepancy. In other words, it is very probable that your property's, I don't know, worth $900,000. Real estate agents think it's worth $900,000. I don't know, you owe $600,000 on it. Uh, the bank's going to go out there and they're probably going to say it's worth $800,000. That's just what they do. For whatever reason, they are able to manipulate quite often the outcome of valuations and you'll quite often see a lower valuation amount than what you're expecting to release equity. However, we just want to put some equity into a cash redraw. We want to turn that air into cash, if you like. And the reason we want to do that, we want to have ourselves a redraw facility that we can pay for when we want to use the money. And if we need to have a little bit of a buffer from that cash in our daily life to even pay for the odd uh, movement in uh, money, in cash flow. Uh, potentially, we've got to plan for um, interest rate hikes or plan for you know the cost of living hikes or just making sure we recapitalize our position. See, what happens when you buy property is you throw quite often, if you're using cash, a lot of your cash into a deal. And then uh, what a lot of people don't do is recycle some of that cash back out to just have a sleep at night factor put into basically a redraw offset facility. It's a very important part of the puzzle because what I know about human beings is they do not feel safe unless they have some cash parked for a rainy day. Now think about it. How safe do you feel when you've got a thousand bucks in the bank? Not safe at all, right? How safe do you feel when you've got 10,000 bucks, you're probably feeling a bit better about life. What about 50,000 bucks? Do you feel pretty safe then? You probably do, depending, of course, on how you live your life and your cost of living and so forth. What about $100,000? What about 500000 If you got $500,000 cash in the bank right now, are you feeling pretty good about life? Probably, right? So again, like the purpose of doing this is not to spend the money. It is to control quite often your emotion. And what you'll find as you go through the cost of living transformation, which is unfolding, you potentially won't even use this money. And guess what? It'll be ready to buy your next investment. So it's a critical part of the current cycle, particularly if you've bought in the last five, 10 years and never done this, the odds of you having equity is probable and you should extract it. 
Now, again, um, of course, some assets have performed better than others, and that's just a factor of, of where real estate sometimes goes. Even if you can extract as, you know, a minimal amount of money, you should go and do it. And I've had clients extract like $30,000. And you think, uh, you know, it's quite often you think, well, wh- you know, it's not a lot of money. Why should I even bother going to do it? Again, you got $30,000 there. You're like, it's on call for you. You're feeling safer. You're making better decisions. You're not fl- uh, flustered. Uh, if you need to use some of the money, you you can use it, right? And again, like this is where we as real estate investors sometimes don't consider equity cash flow, but actually equity can be cash flow. Equity can allow you to cash flow real estate for a long period of time. And again, we just want to make sure we're setting ourselves, our structures up properly so that if we're um, in a position where we, you know, feeling cost of living pressures, we can make a decision to use some money. Simple as that, right? It's as simple as that. It's like a low cost credit card, if you like. But word of warning, don't be stupid with the money. Don't even use the money. It's just setting yourselves up for a much structurally nice period. Now, again, like... Uh, if you're listening and you're coming into the marketplace and you think, wow, why would be people be doing this? The same coaching would apply when your property investment moves. You try and extract the equity. You don't leave it as air. You liquefy the equity. You turn it into liquid cash, liquid gold. That's what we're trying to do here. So today we're building the economic moat. I think some other things you can do to soften the cost of living pressures to make sure you've got a really sizable moat is reset your mortgages. Now, it's very, very common for property investors to start out with a 25 or 30 year home loan, uh, take a interest only period. Um, and then when that interest-only period runs out, the loan uh, actually uh, becomes more extreme for people because what happens is you might have had a 30-year home loan, you take a five-year interest-only period. Now you've got a 25-year home loan, uh, interest and principal. Uh, when you come off your five-year interest-only period. And of course, this can really um, mess with people's back pocket. So the next tip, if you like, is to always be financial. Always make sure your tax returns are up to date. Always be ready to finance. And again, like um, for a... you, this is a massive hassle. The fact, like no one likes going to a broker and doing their uh, assets and liabilities, income and expenses. So this is again really critical that if you've basically put yourself in a position where you're, you, you've bought a few properties and you know, you're, you're, you're too comfortable, you've been spending like a nutter um, and all of a sudden what that can do is actually lock you into not restarting your mortgages again. And again, the younger you are, 
the absolute better off you're going to be to do this. Um, you know, I've got a team member, you know, she's onto her fifth property. She's an absolute gun. Um, she wanted to buy her dream home, a fifth property to, to put in her portfolio. It was actually a dream home. Um, she had mortgages, you know, all over the place, 24 years ago, 23 years ago, that kind of thing. The way for her to buy her next property was to start all the mortgages again because it lowers, obviously, the, um, the payment that you need to make because it's spread out over a longer period of time. And in real estate, there's a thing called, and I can never say it properly, amortization, which is just means that what quite often happens with home loans is the uh, interest section of the market or section of the loan is actually loaded on top of the principal. So quite often the first 10 years of a home loan, you don't, you're not really paying off anything, even though it could be interest in principal, mainly because the way the banks structure it is they front load the uh, interest section of, of your principal and interest loan to make it even harder for you to actually bite into the principal so you're a client over a longer period of time. So you've just got to watch that one. Um, it is a tip. Again, if you can restart a mortgage and it's in your best interest to do so, this will help build an economic moat around your current situation potentially. And of course, this doesn't apply to everyone because like right now, statistics in society, of course, are showing that most people are ahead on their mortgage. They're ahead on their home loan. They've got redraws. They've, they've basically been paying off their home loans really, really well. And because they're in a much lower debt position, they won't need to actually do this. They, they're well on their way to owning their real estate assets outright. So again, you've just got to weigh it up. And these are some of the ideas around building this kind of moat. I also think if you are a property investor in your own assets, we are in the great rental boom of our generation. It's been so long since something like this has come along. I was just looking at some SQM uh, research uh, statistics on the vacancy rate in, of course, many marketplaces. And there is some incredibly low vacancy rates in Australia today. It's ridiculous. Like Melbourne, uh, I was looking at the June figures. Um, and again, that was a couple of, couple of months ago, but these things tend to uh, lag a little bit. Um, you know, you're at like 1.7%, 1.6%. Melbourne's a city of 5 million people. Sydney's similar, 5 million people, 1.6% vacancy. That should be at 4% if people could readily find a, find a property to live in. Now, then you've got your smaller marketplaces where things are even more catastrophic, like your Brisbane's, Adelaide's, Hobart's, Perth, I mean, these vacancy rates are now less than 1%. So how to understand, I guess, the rental market, if you like, a good way to manage your expectations when it comes to where you can take rents is 
um, a, a balanced market, the vacancy rate is considered about 3%. So what that means is neither the landlord's in charge nor the tenant's in charge. Like it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it could go either way based on stock on the market that uh, given week. Um, you know, no one's technically in charge. Uh, when it drops to 2%, well, let's, let's go the other way. When it goes to 4%, um, the tenants in charge, like, like rents are coming down. Tenants have so much choice. They literally, uh, will pay less than what you're expecting. When it comes to 3%, that's balanced. And of course, if you go to 2%, um, the landlord starts to become in charge. So really everywhere in Australia, the landlord's in charge. Between 2% and 1%, the rent increases are okay, but they're not like spectacular. Under 1%, really the ability to push rents exponentially unfolds. And it really unfolds by virtue of more the tenants being willing to pay more than even the landlords expecting. And we're starting to see that in many marketplaces where it's almost like a tenant auction marketplace where tenants are going, well, uh, it's worth 700. I'll just give you $780 a week. Like I'm happy. I've got money. I've got a good job. Like here's the money. Just give me the property. And this is, this is what we're seeing in the marketplace, which is amazing, right? So really the much smaller markets around Australia today are in this kind of space. And then you've got Sydney and Melbourne on their way to it. And it's probably uh, those two markets have been handicapped a little bit by virtue of the lockdown, which happened, you know, two, two years ago or whenever it was. So... Um, it's interesting, right? When we track the figures, you can almost see the the uh, huge rental pressure that society is under. And of course, this is also being reported when it comes to the cost of living. And again, this is why you're better off being the landlord than the tenant. Uh, this is why you're better off being an investor than a non-investor because for a lot of non-investors who are renters, like the odds of them now being able to save more money to buy a property, to become homeowners, uh, to even become investors is diminishing by the day because their cost of living pressures are rising to the point where it's just going to mean it's going to take longer, it's going to be harder for them to join everyone else in the property marketplace. So it's not going to get easier. And this, again, I think is one thing we need to flag. Things are not going to get easier. You've just got to get better and get on with your life. And the more you don't invest, the more the cost of living pressures will pull you down and pull you back into the uh fundamentally the rat race. Now, some good tips to understand, you know, where to understand, you know, rents, um, you know, and I'm probably preaching to the converted here, but go to SQM Research, go to their free suburb reports, put in your postcode. You can see where your vacancy is at. Um, obviously, you can track the history of a suburb's vacancy rate. 
You can do uh, a little bit of looking into you know, what happened last year, what that might mean for where rent should be this year. And of course, uh, correlate that, just go on to domain.com or realestate.com, have a look at what stocks on the market today, have a look how it compares to your own real estate. And if you think it's time to talk to your agent about pushing your rents up, you definitely should be having that conversation. Rents are going up. There is some legislation around how many times you can put rents up in various states. So, uh, for example, in Victoria, you know, is it better to take a $20 rent increase in Melbourne today? Maybe just hold back uh, another six months and watch that vacancy fall even further and maybe put the rent uh, rents up even further than what what you could do today technically if that vacancy rate begins to even get squeezed even further and fall below 1%. When something falls below 1%, you really got a free hit at pushing the rents up as much as you possibly can in line with the marketplace. And of course, there is a, a breaking point for many people in society. And I've been alluding to this one for a long time. Like we want to be able to buy real estate and hold real estate where the rental market is not actually in rental stress. We want to be able to go, well, that marketplace can sustain more movement. And this will help our moat. Remember, if you're buying real estate, you want to buy real estate in a place where people will pay more for that real estate, more than what you paid for it down the track. And of course, we if we are investors, we want to buy real estate where people will rent for more than what it, the property is rented for today down the track. And that is kind of making sure the socioeconomics of an area stands out to be you know reasonably good enough that there is the ability to push rents and there's no rental stress in the marketplace certainly some suburbs will reach the zenith of where rents can be pushed to so the economic moat if you like starts to diminish other marketplaces where people have don't have a budget issue really the economic moat can be pushed further and further and further and we can build our defensive moat around cash flow strategies, which is what today is all about. Now, I have mentioned this in the past in a couple of episodes, but I'll explain it one more time. What you need to do is get a depreciation schedule done on your property, making sure you're claiming everything possible when it comes to depreciation of your building and your shuttles of your investment property. Now, a lot of property investors fail to get this done and rely on their accountant to uh, basically guess the depreciation basically using um, a spreadsheet. And again, this this can be a flawed model, you're probably better off getting a full depreciation schedule done. If you own a new property, you can fundamentally depreciate all of it. Uh, If you own a property that is built after 1987, 88, 
89, that kind of era, you can depreciate some of the building. Obviously, much of it is to being depreciated. So, you know, you 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 can get some tax back. You can get some deductions. You can get some money in your back pocket. Now, remember, we want to build an economic moat here. We want to make sure that we're making uh, it easy for us to go through life. And one of the best ways to do that is to claim your tax back every time you basically uh, your job, your PAYG job, does your weekly, monthly paycheck fundamentally. And we call this a PAYG tax variation. Now, you're, if, you, if you do work somewhere, you need to have a conversation with payroll, human resources or whoever it may be, and talk to them about can you do your PAYG variation. Um, obviously, there are some forms to fill out. There are some things to do, some homework to do here. But what it can do is put a lot of cash flow in your back pocket. Now, let's just say, uh, you know, there's $10,000 worth of deductions you can get back a year from one property. Let's just use that easy maths, right? Let's make it $10,400. That's basically $200 a week that you're letting the Australian tax office basically use Uh because you're claiming it back at the end of the financial year. You can obviously get that money quicker, put it in your back pocket sooner, and of course, lower your stress levels when it comes to owning real estate. And if you're smart with that money, you can park it on an offset. And so because you're getting the money quicker, you're offsetting potentially your mortgage cost on assets and actually um, putting yourself in a position where you're paying less to own the real estate because you're offsetting it. Really, that leads us to the next strategy, offset accounts. Offset accounts are some of your best uh, defensive plays when it comes to owning real estate. The fact that you may have a pot of cash from your job, money coming in, cash flow coming in from rent. You want to make sure that that money goes into a bucket and that bucket is linked to one of your investments or your family home or whatever it may be to fundamentally uh, not pay as much for your mortgage. It'll offset your mortgage. Now, again, I'm preaching to the converted. You guys know this stuff, but let's just say you had, I don't know, a $500,000 property and you have an offset account and you have $100,000 cash in the offset. Let's say the mortgage was $500,000. Uh, instead of paying your loan or your um, monthly mortgage on $500,000, you're going to be paying it on $400,000 because you've got $100,000 in your offset. Jeez, that was a mouthful. Hopefully you understand what I'm talking about. These are great defensive strategies when it comes to uh, your situation going through uh, a, a cost of living adjustment, right? And again, things are not going to get easier. You just got to get smarter when it comes to this thing called property investment. And that's why... Holding real estate is quite often part of the magic of becoming a great property investor. Some other 
defensive strategies, if you like, is to workshop your loans, right? Is there actually a better loan product out there for you today? Uh, And this is, again, where I think quite often we can do a few things when it comes to owning real estate. We can do what we often refer to as a rate review. Are we paying too much? And as we know, when we're an existing customer, generally of a bank, uh, we're generally paying more than a new customer starting fresh. They kind of get this honeymoon rate and we, as we own real estate and we're the customer of a bank, we don't get offered the honeymoon rate. We had the honeymoon and now we've got the full rate. And of course, if you're smart, you can start to renegotiate some of your loan products. And I think when it comes to obviously the cost of owning real estate, renegotiating is is a big part of it. You've got to be a negotiator. You've got to be willing to ring up and ask the question. So one of the best tips is to actually just ring your funder and say, I'm not happy with the rate. I would like to renegotiate. And believe it or not, uh, this often leads to financial success when it comes to rates. Uh, You can ring and if you want a tip, ask for the retention department. Hey, I would like to speak to the retention department. I think I can get a better rate. And of course, they're going to ask you uh, what rate is better and no different when you go to JB Hi-Fi and you're like, Harvey Norman's got this TV, they're cheaper than you, can you match it? You can play those games with lenders. So don't be shy to do it. Now's the time to play that game. Now, there are other options out there and this is something I've been coaching a lot of my clients to consider when they become property investors And lo and behold, they're saving bucket loads of money and the cost of living pressures are not as high for them because their investment loans are green star loans. Yes. Does that sound crazy? Today, you can get a clean green home loan. Yes. In fact, uh, Resimac, for example, which is is, um, a lender, pretty common lender out there, They'll give you up to 1.58% of your investment loan by actually having the right Green Star Energy rated property. It's pretty crazy, huh? That's a lot of money. When you think about where rates are today, if you're getting basically 1.5% off the headline rate, that's a pretty big discount. And again, This is why I've been coaching that we've got to think about where the world is headed towards. We have climate change targets. We've got a climate change policy and agenda. There's the ESG movement, which is inside of real estate. And what this is leading companies to do is basically offer green products. Now, to get a Green Star loan or a uh, clean green loan, if you like, basically, you've got to have a property whereby the thermal efficiency of the asset is very, very high. And to achieve that, you have to get it what is known as a Natus 
score, a Natter's score of seven stars or more. Now, again, think about when you buy, I don't know, a fridge, right? And you look on, you go to Harvey Norman and there's a sticker on the fridge and it's like this one's, you know, five-star energy rated, six-star energy rated. Today, houses have the same concept. They have an energy rating. And obviously, the older the home, it'll have a zero energy rating. The newer the home, it could possibly reach an energy rating that allows for an interest rate much lower than the marketplace. And again, I've been coaching my clients to consider thermal efficiency when it comes to investment decisions. And everyone's been, you know, listening to me thinking I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, just a greenie or something, but I've been alluding to this. Like, yes, of course, like everyone, I'm a normal human being and care about, you know, people, places, and of course the planet, but because of the ESG movement, which is going to meddle with where real estate is headed, you're going to get benefits from doing this. And of course, today, one of the biggest benefits is cheaper money. Green money is cheaper money. You can borrow green money cheaper. So you've got to get a NADA score on your asset. And if you can prove your asset scores above a 7%, you can have cheaper money. If you have cheaper money, you've got more money in your back pocket. So again, these are some of the defensive strategies I've been using and teaching people. And today, a lot of my uh, my clientele, if you like, um, are, are basically, they go to, it's, it's so interesting, they go to the bank with their uh, with their energy rating of their property. It's an amazing, amazing transformation of how money is unfolding in society. Now, as I alluded to, you've got to renegotiate everything. That doesn't include um, just, you know, funding. It includes things like your daily budget. You know, what are you wasting money on? How many subscriptions have you probably got that you're just wasting your money on? You know, is it time? I mean, I don't know about you. I just got rid of Foxtel. I mean, I couldn't work out how they charge that much in this day and age, but they, you know, they it was it's just not worth the money, right? Um, and you know, it's time that you know you think about renegotiating stuff. Like, is it time to turn off subscriptions? Is it time to actually renegotiate things for the better? Is it time to renegotiate your workplace? Is it time to renegotiate, um, you know, your electricity, your gas bill? Who provides what to you? And this is the real game of life now. It's like we've got to be smarter and review where our money goes because, again, if we can put ourselves in a financially fit place, the market is going to move again. And again, I think personally where interest rates will go, they'll go to a point and then obviously they'll overshoot the mark. Then they'll come back. And when they come back, everyone will want to buy again. So probably you're in a period where opportunity allows you to 
find some very good real estate deals. But you've got to be financial. You've got to put yourself in a financial place. And again, if your own real estate, probably today's show is for you. You've got to put yourself in a position where you're doing your depreciation schedule. You're making sure you're reviewing your rates. You're making sure you're uh, creating a really good budget. You're locking in that equity. You're negotiating on everything. If you've got a thermally efficient property, pull out the trump card. You've fundamentally won the lottery. You're going to be able to get cheaper money. You've got to be doing your PAYG variation. You've got to be claiming your tax back weekly. You've got to work out how to go and put your rents up. And of course, uh, make sure that you've got your buffer set up with your equity um, set up as a redraw, you know, whatever you want to call it, line of credit, park some cash. That's the plan. That's the economic moat. That's the homework, folks. So that's the show today. you got homework to do. I'm going to leave it with you. I've done my homework. Make sure you do your homework. Thanks for tuning in to The Urban Property Investor. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to The Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of The Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.